My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. Today's episode is about neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism? It is an ideology that believes in the introduction of competitive market norms into what were historically non-market domains, healthcare, education, electricity, water provision, etc. All of these services that were part of the compromise between labor and capital right around the mid-20th century are now available for transaction through the marketplace. In today's episode, I consider the basis of neoliberalism and how ultimately it undermined then the democratic capitalist compromise of the 20th century. So, what does that take us to? That takes us to neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is the economic model in operation today. This is not to say that we have no instances of import substitution. I gave you the example of Egypt. And what I can now tell you, because I've explained to you the denationalization of production, I can say to you that the phone is not being manufactured in Egypt. It is being assembled in Egypt. But I'm a nationalist, so I'm still proud. So we have this denationalization of production, and that in itself lends itself to a particular type of economic model. And the one that we have is known as neoliberalism. Some of the others still in place, social policies still in place, industrial regulations still in place. A lot of that is still in place. But the one that dominates is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is a political, it is a social, and it is a legal project. It is a legal project that seeks to extend, seeks to extend competitive market forces, market logic, to extend market logic into non-market domains, non-market sectors. And it does this in one of three ways, and I'm sure you've heard this before, liberalization, which we've mentioned plenty of times already, deregulation, which I've also mentioned in relation to industrial policy, and privatization, privatization as well. The aim is ultimately to consolidate what we would call a market-friendly climate. Now, neoliberalism, whether you want to say by accident or by design, most of the critical writers on neoliberalism will say that it's by design, and those who developed the model will say that it was by accident. And by accident, not in the sense that, oh, this was unforeseen, but rather has to do with the interventions. They regard the interventions by the state as interferences, and the interferences are ultimately what caused what I'm going to describe to you now. The consequence of the adoption of a neoliberal model has been very much what we would call success. But success from the perspective of capital in disbalancing then that compromise that had been achieved with labor. 
subverting that compromise with labor. It modified the balance of power that existed between the two parties. So, a few statistics. Concentration of wealth in fewer hands has never been greater. Wages, in real terms, have stagnated for a generation. A generation. Spiraling inequality, increasing personal debt. Actually, it's amazing to look at personal debt that individuals had from the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, all the way into the noughties. And what you see then is that debt back in the 70s would have been roughly, you were saying then per capita, 54, 58% within that range per person. Fast forward to today, anyone know what the number is? 150. We have far more debt than we have wealth. So that shift there, so personal debt. And of course, what we've also seen, the quality of public services has declined. And this is largely because of the downward pressure that has been placed on taxation. Now, looking at this through the lens of international economic law, international economic law that has been structured in our neoliberalism, the aim has been to reduce the friction between borders. So the tariffs that you see, the subsidies that would have been in place, all of those, as I even heard mentioned in one of the uh, seminars this morning, all of those were, from a neoliberal perspective, forms of trade distortion. They distort the marketplace. The problem that I assigned to you today, or for this week, regarding cotton, subsidies that are provided, you are distorting the price of cotton because you are providing, you are interfering with the invisible hand of the market. Now, those are frictions, and the aim has been to reduce those frictions so as to facilitate the free flow of goods, to facilitate the free flow of capital, and these days of services, as we'll study in a couple of weeks. But more importantly than that, with neoliberalism, it wasn't just about reducing the frictions, it was also, as I said, shifting then market logic into non-market spheres, shifting it into non-market spheres. And so some of you were thinking then now about that question, or at least I hope you were, that question that I asked you at the outset. Is the NHS economically efficient? Should the NHS aim for economic efficiency? Let's start with the first one. Is the NHS economically efficient? Well, let me ask you this. What does the NHS provide? And what does the NHS get in exchange for this healthcare? The NHS doesn't collect taxes. Someone? I heard something? Well, workers in the NHS collect wages. But what does the NHS get in exchange? Nothing, precisely. It's not a market transaction. I see a doctor because I need healthcare. And the universal policy, the social policy that was adopted, was one that you'd provide universal access or universal health care to people in the UK. <coughs> so it is not economically efficient. It is providing an essential service. Are the police economically 
efficient? Is the primary school you went to economically efficient? The secondary school you went to, is that economically efficient? Is Warwick economically efficient? <laughs> different question. Why different question when I mention Warwick? You have to pay now for access. We've changed the logic. Remember, university education, tertiary education, according to the International Covenant, is a human right. And what is meant to be achieved, according to, I think it's Article 13 in the Covenant on Socioeconomic Rights, you're meant to achieve progressive realization of free tertiary education. And this is a question that I used to ask my students, is the UK in breach of the International Covenant because we're moving in the opposite direction? And the answer is, invariably, yes. It's in breach of human rights because you're now charging for tuition or charging for university education. So all of those social policies, and social policies by definition, are not economic endeavors. They're the provision of essentials. But now when we speak of the NHS, we speak that the NHS needs to achieve greater efficiency in the delivery of medical services. Schools need to be more efficient in the delivery of educational services. The language has shifted to reflect a shift in our perception of these services. We often think in terms now, even when it comes to public services, in terms of cost recovery. This is a fancy term that means simply the institution has to break even. It must recover its costs. But how do you recover costs for a service such as healthcare. So this market logic has begun entering, has pierced, has penetrated what would have historically been viewed as non-market sectors of society. There's a fascinating book by a law professor. He's a legal philosopher at Harvard, I believe, Michael Sandel. If you have a moment, read it. It's a, one of the books that he wrote for popular consumption. He has an excellent course entitled Justice. It's available online and you can view the lectures. But the book is entitled What Money Can't Buy. And he goes into the discussion from a legal philosophical perspective as to what should we limit then market logic to market aspects of life or is the market itself absolute and this is where he draws the distinction between a market economy and a market society. And his argument is ultimately, we have become a market-based society. And the logic that we operate with is very much one of cost-benefit. What is the cost of sitting in a lecture on a Thursday afternoon for two hours, listening to Mohsen rant and rave about international economic law? Which to me doesn't even sound like international economic law anyway. What is the cost of that? What is the benefit of it? My father is very fond of that. He says, son, what's the cost-benefit analysis? And I say, I love her, dad. <laughs> There's sometimes in life where you make mistakes and you say, oh, I can never take that one back. Um, so the consequence is that ultimately we have disassociated then 
many of these social relations, these social activities, these social objectives have been disassociated then from the society where they're taking place. Now take a moment and think about that for a second. What do I mean by it? When it comes to, I travel to Cairo quite regularly, I've mentioned several times before, I'm Egyptian and I visit my family and I have some affairs there, so I travel to Egypt on the regular. And it's amazing to me to see the different services that are being provided, whether it comes from collection then of rubbish, the building of motorways, construction of motorways, construction of the airport, a beautiful library that we have in the north in Alexandria, right? a variety of these things, and to meet the workers who are there, but more importantly then, the companies that are building it, because none of them are Egyptian. All of these services that the country relies upon are being conducted by private transnational corporations. Now, when you delink that, and the private transnational corporation is delivering the service, why? For a reason very different that a country would establish the NHS. So when a country establishes the NHS, it is because not just the compromise, but then the belief that ultimately what I meant to provide is a minimum standard of living to the population. But now I've signed a treaty that requires me to open my market in services to the provision, to the potential of provision by foreign providers because we are liberalizing the service market. Now it provides it for a different reason. And any of you who are interested, do a quick search, South Africa, cholera, cost recovery. South Africa, cholera, and cost recovery. Do a quick search and read a couple of the news items about how the provision of water, when the objective became cost recovery, resulted in an epidemic of cholera. Because when the taps were turned off and people still needed water, they would necessarily go to the river to get the water. And that resulted in the spread of a lethal infectious disease. So is this to say all capitalists are terrible, liberalization is bad? No, not at all. Again, as always, I'm pointing to the different economic models are ultimately going to precipitate the development of different laws. And, and this is great, I have a final five minutes for it, which will work really well. Let me take a step back. I spent the past four weeks providing you with some history, maybe of the world, but a little bit more narrow than that. A history of economic relations taking place between different regions, different nation states, different entities, and such. Without this background, it is impossible to understand what the WTO is. You could give me a definition of the WTO. You could tell me when the WTO was established. You could probably then even tell me what the GATS or the GAT or the Agreement on Agriculture or TRIPS, what each one of those acronyms means. But you wouldn't understand how those came about. 
The objective with this exploration of international economic legal history was to ensure that you have the foundation, the context, the understanding necessary to engage with the different treaties and laws and blocks that have been established. So when someone says to you, I'm in favor of free trade, you know that that in itself has implications. It's not about being in favor of free trade or against free trade. It's understanding that if you're in favor of the liberalization of trade, you are also in favor of the denationalization of production because of the time-space compression and how that is going to put downward pressure then on domestic revenue, particularly from, from taxation. Because if I loosen capital controls and capital can move elsewhere, then Michael Dell can sit in a chair in Davos and tell me, my wife and I are happy to be philanthropic. We don't really want to pay taxes. Anyone hear that? Did anyone see that clip? Take a look at that. Michael Dell, sitting in Davos, asked a question. Do you agree with the representative, Cortez, is that her name? In the US, who's called for a 70? Right? Yes, Cortez, calling for that 70% tax rate. Asked, do you agree? Michael Dell, billionaire, says, my wife and I, we give a lot of money to our philanthropy. To which philanthropy? Oh, the Michael Dell Foundation, yes. <laughs> and we're very happy doing it that way. And you know what? That is going to, no, no, he continues. A 70% tax rate is going to negatively impact on economic growth. Remember last week where I said, what? does anyone want to live in a country where what? that is economically contracting? You lifted your head up from your phone and said, hell no. <laughs> of course not. And he says economic contraction. And it's great because someone else who was sitting there alongside him said, actually, we used to have that in the United States. And if you look at growth rates, growth rates were the highest when we had that high tax rate. And growth rates have actually dropped since we've lowered that tax rate. And this allows me to get to my final lesson for today. I give you this background because all of international economic law is built around, as I've said to you repeatedly, access to markets and access to resources. That is ultimately what it is. I need resources to be able to produce the goods. I need resources to be able to provide the services. I need the technology. The list goes on and on. I need access to resources and I need access to markets. I need a place where I can sell those goods. Now, every society has a floor. And this is the minimum that we're allowed, that we would allow anyone to fall. This can include, say, primary education. It can include universalized healthcare. It can include welfare payments, benefits, as they're often called. These different things. You have a floor. Now, it's a political choice where you set the floor. But I need something to fund the floor. And I can fund the floor with tariffs. I can fund the floor with taxes. I can fund the floor with sales of goods. There are a variety of ways that I can fund the floor, but depending on how much revenue I have, I can either push the floor upwards if I can increase that revenue, or as my revenue diminishes, downward pressure on the floor. 
So as Margaret Thatcher did, taking the tax rate from 85%, the upper tax rate, to 60%, what did she place? Downward pressure on the floor. So then I need to find another way to maintain it, or necessarily, as I always say, a tax cut isn't really a tax cut, a tax cut is a service cut. So don't speak to me about tax cuts, speak to me about service cuts. But then, I also have a ceiling. And the ceiling can be in the form of taxation, that present, prevents it. It can be in terms of ownership, how much land any one person is permitted to own. It can be in terms of capital controls, where the money can go. There are a variety of ways that I can maintain this ceiling also. And the idea is that wealth is finite, it becomes ultimately a distribution of the wealth within this band. Now between the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, the top one percentile in the UK earned 7% of national income. One to seven. Because of both the floor and the ceiling. Today, that one to seven is now, wait for it, wait for it, one to 24, one to 24. So when I said to you that neoliberalism has been a success, it's because it managed to place downward pressure on the floor, reduction of taxation, elimination of capital controls, reduction of tariffs, and eliminated the ceiling. So now, and we saw the numbers the other day, 26 people, 26 billionaires own more than half the world's population. That is international economic law. To understand all of this, it is essential to understand the history of international economic law, to know what mercantilism is, to know what liberalism is, to know why there are Marxist critiques of it, to know how all of this led to what are called ordo-liberals in Germany, which explains the difference between the EU and the US, and if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask. We didn't have time to cover it. And then ultimately led to neoliberalism, neoliberalism that has produced a ratio, the top 1% taking 24% of national income. 26 individuals owning more than 3.6 billion. That is what international economic law has made possible by placing rules around the floor and rules around the ceiling. So over the next few weeks, we are shifting entirely. And I'm really sorry that this portion of the module comes to an end. But we're shifting entirely. And now we're focusing more heavily on the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank. I'll send out the reading shortly. I have to make some changes, some tweaks to the list that is out but you'll have that with you very soon. Thank you very much and see you then next week.